0: june
1: 30 1956 is a bright and smoky day in los angeles or so i'll piece together later from the moment i wake up i am so focused i can only dimly register my surroundings i have one job get to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. For years, my life has been a vector, pointed directly at an event born 2,700 years earlier. For an athlete like myself, there's no greater achievement than the Olympics. No higher honor, no clearer test of one's worth. How do you get to the Olympics? You show up at the Coliseum. This glorious white art modern monument competition. And you run faster than the other guys. Not all of them. Eight of us have made it to the 400-metre dash trials finals. And to advance to the Olympics, I just need to be in the top four.
0: At 86, Russ Ellis has led such a rich life. A celebrated sociologist at UC Berkeley, and then the vice-chancellor there. The first full-time African-American instructor at the Claremont Colleges. A father, a grandfather, an accomplished painter and sculptor. And just last year, he cut his first album. But for all that, a single minute some 65 years ago has haunted him to this day. In this episode of Meditative Story, Russ reflects on what might have been That variety of thought that infects all of us at some point. How would my life have been different had this one moment gone another way? And what are we to do with those nagging questions? In this series, we combine immersive first-person stories and breathtaking music with the science-backed benefits of mindfulness practice. From Wait to What, this is Meditative Story. I'm Rohan and I'll be your guide. The body relaxed. The body breathing your senses open, your mind open, meeting the world.
1: Is losing Stalingrad and Japan rolling through Burma. But my world is wind. It rips through the San Gorgonio Pass, howling over low scrub, whining across sun-baked boulders, rattling the windows of the tiny, hot, lonesome room that will be mine for six unlikely years. It's the early 1940s. I am a city boy exiled from the city. My world turned upside down precisely as the world itself has turned upside down. One day, my mother took one last look at her life in Los Angeles, threw some clothes in a suitcase, and ran off to New York. It's just me and my father at that point. But then he's drafted, and it's just me. At six, I'm sent to a small farm in San Bernardino County, outside the parched, burgeoning steel town of Fontana. The black folks live in a little enclave called Landon, a rural ghetto, essentially, surrounded by orchards and vineyards and fields of those boulders. The farmer who lives here has built this house by hand. And now, in their rough way, he and his wife have taken me in, given me a room of my own in the shadow of Mount Baldy. Farm life is an adjustment. We raise what we eat. Corn, pigs, cows. Mistakes earn a whipping. Our heat comes from a wood stove, and going to the bathroom means walking to the outhouse. Once, in the middle of a dark, frigid night, walking down the dirt driveway, I had the singular human experience of stepping barefoot on a snake. Days are quiet. The clan is active in the surrounding community, but my existence is insular, given to fantasy. Mount Baldy looms to the northwest, and I populate every little cave with beings. Meanwhile, the wind. It's a constant presence, tearing over the arid plain, giving a low, unrelenting whistle to everything. One day, I'm walking along the road at the edge of our enclave of minty eucalyptus on my right and a broad, exposed plain to my left. This road is where that San Gorgonio wind blasts through. And as I'm walking, a particularly strong gust comes up from the east. For reasons unknown, because of instinct or chance, I start to run with it. I begin with a jog, then break into a sprint. The wind pushes me along, my slender body a sail. The trees a blur. I've never moved this fast before. I've never seen anyone else move this fast before. I am moving faster than the wind. A little out of control, but mostly just amazed. And then something strange happens. I discover my kick. I can reach for another gear and go even faster. Nothing is ever the same. Years pass. Mail from my father sustains me. He misses me. He loves me. He sends a photo of himself in uniform. As far as I'm concerned, he is defeating the Axis forces single-handedly. And then one morning in fourth grade, my world flips back over. Russell Ellis, my teacher announces, glancing toward the back of the room. Your father is here. My father and I move back to the city, and that speed of mine only grows. Gradually, I learn to harness it, to channel that magic kick. It gives my life direction. Coaches notice me. Local papers notice me. In high school, I run the second-fastest half-mile in California. It's a heady time. The world is smitten with track and field. Hunched over their radios and sports sections. Mal Whitfield, Glenn Cunningham, Mel Patton. These are household names. When Roger Bannister shatters the four-minute mile in 1954... Edison might as well have invented the light bulb all over again. Me, I'm making my way up a ladder. My speed wins me a full scholarship to UCLA. And with that comes more notice. Comments from professors, attention from my fellow students. For a brief period, my magic kick and I are featured regularly in the Daily Bruin. It's not altogether healthy to have one's ego faded like this at such a formative age, but it's fun. My sophomore year, I return home to compete in the legendary Compton Invitational, notching my best time ever. For a period, I'm officially the fastest quarter miler in the world. But I'm gunning for something far bigger. June 30, 1956 is a bright and smoky day in Los Angeles, or so I'll piece together later. From the moment I wake up, I am so focused, I can only dimly register my surroundings. I have one job, get to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. For years, my life has been a vector, pointed directly at an event born 2,700 years earlier. For an athlete like myself, there's no greater achievement than the Olympics, no higher honor, no clearer test of one's worth. How do you get to the Olympics? You show up at the Coliseum, this glorious white art modern monument competition. And you run faster than the other guys. Not all of them. Eight of us have made it to the 400-meter dash trials finals. And to advance to the Olympics, I just need to be in the top four. I arrive at the Coliseum and head into the low, windowless locker room to put on my blue and gold UCLA shorts and shirt. Then I step outside into a roar. I'm used to crowds by now, but I've never seen anything like this. The stands are jammed with men, women, and children in bright clothing, shouting and waving their official programs. My father is up there with my stepmother. Amazingly, some of these people have come to see me, this kid from a windy farm, who made good.
0: Let's hang here for a little bit and enjoy the energy of the crowd. Russ's hope and pride being expressed in how he's carrying his body chest open.
1: I'm assigned lane four and make my way to the starting blocks. Fingers, my fingers, I always pay extra attention to the placement of my thumb and index finger on the gritty surface of the track, split at just the right angle. My left knee jutted forward under my chest, right leg stretched back, a coiled spring. Runners, take your marks. The roar in the stands draws to a tense hush. Get set. every track I've ever circled has led to this one. Bang! A thin shot, and I'm gone. My legs are thunder, my feet lightning. Everything else blackness. My mind empties of everything but the lane before me number four is decent, a gently angled to manage, which means less energy needed to fight the turn. It also means you can't see who's behind you. How you parcel out your energy and speed and timing is up to you. Until the final seconds, it's a run, not a race. I come off the last turn and the stagger of the curve resolves itself. There are four runners ahead of me. Time to reach for my kick. I go down to find it, as I have so many times, as I learned back on the farm. But it's not there. Nothing is there. Or maybe the other guys have kicks, too. The finish line approaches. My legs are about to split from my body. I give it everything. And then, like that. It's over, fifth place. Run as fast as I'd hoped and I'd be going to the Olympics, but I don't, and I'm not. In a fog, I descend into the locker room, change, and for the next 56 years, in the woods of Long Island, in the flats of Berkeley, in the clamor of family, in the halls of academia, but never again, on a hot track, aching for a gold medal, I live my life. Mine's a good one, as lives go. I go on to earn my doctorate in sociology at UCLA. I'd always been a natural sociologist. Being black in that era, my antennae were always up. After UCLA, I become the first full-time African-American professor at the Claremont Colleges in Southern California. From there, I become part of the founding of SUNY Old Westbury in New York. I begin teaching once a week at Yale. And then when a new position opens up at Berkeley, I pounce, becoming the first sociology professor within the vaunted Department of Architecture in 1970. How do people interact with their environments and vice versa? I love the research. I love teaching. I love my colleagues. And when I'm made vice chancellor, I love that too. As much as you can love such a thing. I love the woman who becomes my wife. And when we become parents, I love my son and my daughter more than I knew possible. Youth may be searing, but the lessons that come later are the profound ones. How to be a parent. How to be a partner. How to work through conflict, plan together. And then, one day in Berkeley, I learned something else. I am a failure. I'm tending the elephant garlic in my large sunsplash garden when the realization hits. The sensation is profound, almost mystical. I can only liken its intensity to the birth of my first child, when I felt a sudden gush of light in the form of water amidst a vast ocean flooding me, pushing me towards some distant shore now, in a different way, I'm flitted all over, this time with the specific sensation of not having utilized my body's potential. I was born a gazelle, but I did not live the life of a gazelle. Outwardly, I'm a success, a working-class kid with a turbulent childhood who carved a path to a loving family and professional acclaim, but inside, I'm haunted. I could have done something, and I didn't. My failure at the Coliseum is a tattoo on my forehead that only I can see.
0: This is a very different energy to what Russ was expressing when at the Colosseum itself. Can you see him? Tense contracted? Do you know what it is to carry an old burden or regret, invisible to the rest of the world but so tangible to us? If you do, what does it feel like? And let's see if we can hold it a little bit lighter, softening and opening the body.
1: the outside world this is baffling one day in my 30s i'm in my office at berkeley a grand book-strewn room shaded by the boughs of a delicate eucalyptus outside the window there's a knock on the door and a colleague pops in we get to chatting and the subject of my olympic disappointment comes up not for the first time a brusque fellow my colleague looks me straight in the eye. He says, why the f- don't you grow up, he asks. You've got kids and a wife and a house and a job. Maybe you can spend some time in what's important now. He's right. But he also can't comprehend that kind of disappointment. I'm from a world of Jackie Robinson and Kenny Washington and Joe Lewis who raised the whole race by their accomplishments. My father worked in the post office, and he was king when I won those races. Hey, Russ, your boy, Russ Junior, killed him. In the Black community, athletic achievement was the thing that you could share with everybody else who was Black. So it is that a single day, not even a day, less than a second, comes to loom over the thousands of days that followed, days that by rights should be eclipsing everything. My failure at the Coliseum becomes the defining feature of my otherwise happy being. The wound threads itself into the fabric of our family. Dad didn't make it to the Olympics, and that's very sad. Ironically, I counsel bereft students about this very fallacy all the time at Berkeley. Getting a B instead of an A isn't who you are, I tell them. It's just something that happened, an event but my wisdom only flows outward. The world turns. After a wonderful career at Berkeley, I take an early retirement in my 60s. I reinvent myself once more, taking up stone carving, then bronze work, then metal. I move on to painting and have several shows. I'm a grandfather now. All new levels of joy. Maybe it's the joy that caused me, at the age of 85, to start recording original songs. My kids, both musicians, help me. I call my first album Songs from the Garden. You know how you get a song in your head sometimes? I now get whole orchestrated movements. One afternoon recently, because of my age, or perhaps quietude that covid has brought i find myself in a looking back mode you know taking stock what did i just do what was that and that race why did it have such staying power the answer to this last one partly timing i was still in the oven so to speak when it happened still forming Those experiences stick. But at a deeper level, I suspect I'd stumbled upon a tangible embodiment of an often intangible feeling. What might have been? Aren't we all plagued by that at some point? What might have been? The question isn't abstract or amorphous in my case. It's disturbingly quantifiable. That's what a race is, a quantifiable fork in the road run a little faster, and my life, the full trajectory of my existence, would have been different. But of course, the trouble with what might have been is that it blinds you to what is. That day at the Colosseum was a loss. That much is true. But what if it was a gift as well? When I stopped gunning single-mindedly for the Olympics all those years back, I slipped, chastened into a life of peregrination. I wandered the landscape, finding joy here and there, never biting down hard on any one thing. A professor, an administrator, an artist, a singer, a partner, a father. For so long, I thought this peregrination was my great penance. Now, replaying the footage, yet another dry summer, giving way to another smoky fall, I see it in a new light. It is my great life.
0: Thank you, Russ. We all have them. Those sliding doors moments. Those forks in our lives which make us, like Russ, wonder what might have been. If it feels safe to do so, bring to mind one of your own. Maybe it's already come up for you as you listen to the story. Let's see, what is it for me? Oh yes. As a 28, 29-year-old, I had the opportunity to do the cliché meditation thing and to disappear into the forest for a few years. But instead, circumstances led me to staying in the city and following the less well-trodden urban mindfulness route. It doesn't perhaps haunt me in the same way Russ's moment did, but the thought of what might have been is here. I can feel it, even today. Gently, always gently. Invite the memory and the thoughts that swirl around it here. Notice the movement of the mind. Feel into what this is like for you. As a young meditator, I did a lot of striving. Sometimes it's called efforting which is a good visceral way of describing the energy I was putting into my practice. Working so hard to achieve. The idea of meditation being goal-oriented might sound odd to some of you. There's a more popular cultural idea of meditation being super chill, and hey, let's go with the flow. But in traditional meditation, there's absolutely a culture of achievement and attainment. There are totally the equivalent of Olympics qualifying times. And I know what the hurt of missing out feels like. Okay. There's a thing called negativity bias in the brain, which basically means that if there's something that is not so great for us to fixate on, we'll do absolutely that to the exclusion of things which are actually all right. You might know this tune. We finish the day, and the only thing we can think about is the bit that sucked. So, it does take work to move the mind away from the natural orbit of the negativity, to break its gravity, whether we're talking about something small or something truly significant. But it can be a simple thing to do, and the mindfulness hack for it is to prioritise the positive, or what I like to call, look for joy. Take your time. There will be something in your experience right now that's actually quite nice. The touch of the air on your skin. The warmth of your clothes on your body. Have a look. It might not be something fancy. It might not be blissful sensations coursing through your chakras and whatnot. But it's okay. It could just be the absence of toothache. It could just be calm. It could just be the smile that comes with your favorite memory from Russ's story. It's a training. And for me now, many years later, if there is something worth everything for, it's the ability to drop into the lovely on demand. So valuable, so nourishing. Less than a second, a splinter of time that became a mountain for us. A short time, but also a long one. Part of me is sad that he held it so tightly. But I also know that the energy of that failure sparked the wider generosity, creativity and impact of his life. So thank you, Russ. And you. You stay safe and well, okay? by helping others discover the show. So if leaving a review speaks to you today, we'd really appreciate it. A meditative Story is a Wait What original. Our executive producers are Darren Triff. June Cohen, and Mary Beth Kirshner. The series is produced by Dorothy Abrams. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday. Chris Collin is our head writer, with script writers Peter Kirkley, Florence Williams, Jess Winfield, Hannah Brencher, Belle Shea, and Andrew Rincon. Technical support from Robin Wise. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Christina Gonzalez, Anna Pizzino, Ben Richardson, Sarah Tata, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Colin Howarth, Charlie Menezes, and Adam Heiner. And I'm Rohan Gunutilaka, creator of the buddha Meditation app, and your host. Visit meditativestory.com to find the transcript for this episode.